HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Ben Mims, Mr. Sweet and Southern himself. <laughs> thank you for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. Um, a couple quick announcements. One, we were both kind of like grooving to the, to the music, to uh-huh. the theme song, and I, I always forget to mention how much I love that song and that band, Cookies. It's pretty amazing. They, they, and appropriately named Cookies for today, since oh, we're going to be talking about baking <laughs> and sweets. Um, but I think they're touring right now, and you should definitely check out Cookies the Band. I think it's cookiesltd.com, and go I see will. them live and in concert. Definitely. Um, number two, we will get to Valentine's Day in a little, but I abhor that holiday so much. <laughs> and this in no way, I mean, it was part coincidence that mm-hmm. you were available and uh, that we're going to be talking about the sweeter things in life. Yeah. Um, but don't think of this as a Valentine's Day episode. Absolutely please, not. please, please, please. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you have sweet things in your life all year round. Exactly. But first of all, you're going to help us pronounce something. Okay. There's this bridge over the Newton Creek here in Brooklyn uh, uh-huh. attaching to Queens. Um, but it's also the name of your hometown in Mississippi. Yes. How do we say this? In Mississippi, we say Kaziesko. Kaziesko. I'm not sure how they say it here, which I'm sure they would retain the Polish pronunciation. Yeah. So I have no idea what that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Polish town name down in Mississippi. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that's an odd one. I think, I think the general or whatever he was, he got around a lot, and so he founded <laughs> lots of places, and so he just 
yeah. marked his name on that one. Met a lot of women. Yeah, met a lot of <laughs> Native American women. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in the south. Um, the other thing I know about your town, other than it has a bridge associated with it, uh-huh. is I believe Oprah was born there. She was born there. Yeah. 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 Is there like an Oprah Day? Is there fanfare? There's not an Oprah Day. There is an Oprah. There's a house she grew up in, and the church that she went to, which are like conveniently located across the street from each other. And that street is conveniently by itself, just a dirt road path on the edge of town. And so that is Oprah Winfrey Lane as wow. well. Yeah. Um, and I think she she gave us a boys and girls club years ago, back when I was probably like 10 years ago. Um, no Oprah Winfrey Day yet. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, that, maybe that'll be the next. Yeah. I'm surprised there thing. wasn't an Oprah Winfrey cake in this book. There should be. Maybe for the... I'm sure she has some kind of special favorite cake that yeah. should be deemed that. Yeah renamed we're gonna work honor. on that i'm gonna i'm gonna that's a good idea expect that in the sequel <laughs> um you were surrounded by almost like oprah this form of entertainment mm-hmm. these lovely women who were mm-hmm. fantastic bakers from yeah. your mother and your aunt uh not your grandma your grandma's neighbor no my grandmother she was a fantastic baker too but she did not make the the cakes that i kind of grew to love up that was her uh neighbor across yeah. the street who was one of those kind of quintessential cake ladies who you know, literally in her old age, she would make layer cakes and, you know, sell them to community organizations for fundraisers or, you know, take them to church potlucks or, you know, to sell them to her neighbors across the street who wanted a cake but didn't have to go through, you know, the, the arduous task of making a layer yeah. cake, which is, you know, can be kind of time consuming. And this you know. is a coconut layer cake at that. She did coconut and she did a caramel cake. Yeah. She may have made others, but those are the only two we ever had. So From her, but from you her. had a lot of cake oh, around yeah, from you. from her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tell me about your mother's weekly pecan pie and it's oh, yeah. pecan right not pecan, pecan. Pie. yeah not pecan yeah. pecan um she made i think it was because she and i had a huge sweet tooth my dad and my brother like loved salt hated sweet so we would always have something sweet around the house for you know after church after uh our big lunch and so i remember every weekend would get started off with either her making her pecan pie um which i put in the book because it is it was something it was one of those recipes like the whole town like went nuts over everyone ever had they're like oh my god you have to have judy's pecan pie and so it was like a famous town recipe and then it was either a pecan pie or she would do a cream cheese pound cake which i remember very fondly which was mostly cream cheese and just butter and very dense very rich we would often like you know take slices of that put it on a paper plate add large you know like blocks of butter to it you know spaced around and then microwave it until it was like hot and like extra butter that was fantastic <laughs> this is how they bulk up the football players down exactly. in Mississippi. there's a reason why i weighed 60 pounds heavier <laughs> yeah. than i do now like i eat this all the time um and so she always had things like that going around and you know after school you know an after school snack for me was always to make up a batch of tea cakes which were these very cakey you know basic vanilla oil cookies that you could just stir up in a like a muffin batter pretty much and then just drop on a pan they were done in 10 minutes and so that was always you know an after school snack for me was to make those so things like that that we always just had around because you know it was just natural and we wanted them it's funny i've, I've been thinking about you know the, the the kitchen of your childhood probably at a very conventional oven um and now you work in food and wine's test kitchens Absolutely, do you yeah. have convection ovens there we do have con- we have ovens that can be you know, switched on to do convection, but because we're still testing recipes that mostly people at home are going to use. And I think nowadays, most people probably do have convection, you know, um, uses in their oven or they can make convection, but it's still by and large, a kind of foreign thing to most people. So we still use like regular convec conventional. Oven, yeah, I guess yeah. I mean, how do you say it? Non-convection. Um, but yeah, so it was, it's like baking is such 
historical ingrained thing in, in, oh, yeah. in the Americas that I just can't. Sometimes it's hard to like put new equipment in the kitchen and yeah. expedite something that shouldn't be. Exactly, and it's it's interesting because like you know working you know I worked um, in California as a pastry chef for a while like that's when I really you know use convection ovens a lot and they do, they are good for certain things um, you know because you get really you know the heat is swirled around them there's a lot of a boost of um, air goes into whatever you're baking so it gets a better rise out of whatever you're making but some things it didn't necessarily work for but some it is good for and um, yeah it's kind of fascinating to me to think about you know a lot of the the cakes that I write about and and or cookies were made or invented, you know, during the the slave years in the South when, you know, all you have is like a wood burning a wood burning oven and they had to make cakes in that. And so um it was interesting to see, you know, the progression of, you know, looking at all those like old recipes that you find from like books back in the eighteen hundreds and things like that. You know, they would just say, you know, throw like, you know, a coconut cake into a hot oven and that's just all they would ever call it. And so you kinda had to surmise and then throughout the years kind of figure out what that was and then it became 350 or a medium oven or things like that. And so it's, it's interesting how the oven has changed what, you know, people bake and how we, you know, write recipes as they are. I today. feel like this intrigue came from your years at Sever. You spent five years there as a food editor yeah. and you know, the, the in-depthness of yeah. uh, researching single everything. subject. Yeah. yeah. Researching everything to death. And that was kind of, you know, um, it definitely influenced uh, the book and some of the recipes I put into the book because the years there I spent uh, baking, you know, because I was the one working in the test kitchen who was comfortable with baking. That's, I kind of started just testing all the baking recipes that we would get in. Um, and so through that, you know, whenever we needed a recipe for a carrot cake or a pavlova or something like that, it was my job to read through all the, you know, the library of cookbooks that we had, research every single recipe ever made for them historical to modern and figure out like what is a classic you know carrot cake or pavlova and like what are the actual ingredients you know what are the variations that people have done but by and large what's like the most classic thing and so i got to read and learn about you know a whole you know host of desserts or baked goods or whatever it would be dishes that um normally i wouldn't have and i yeah kind of learned this kind of kind of nerdy research nest that i needed to have to really learn where something came from yeah and i felt like that helped you know it helped kind of inform some of the recipes I put in the book too, because, you know, like a good class of the recipes I have in the book are ones that kind of merge the international, um, recipes that I love with Southern. And I think that I could have only made those connections and, you know, seen those similarities through researching, you know, recipes from around the world, but also Southern recipes as well. And seeing where, um, you know, a cake, or, you know, a dessert in Mexico has the same flavors, but it's just taking the different form as a pumpkin pie in, you know, the South or a sweet potato pie in the South, excuse me. Um, and so things like that. And so just trying to figure out where the ceremonies came from. And so then whenever I would, you know, have that dish again, I could be like, oh, this is such an easy, it's such an apparent, you know, um, similarity to what we have growing up in the South. And it's such a not, you know, it's not just like a one-off update or one-off like random flavor thrown in. It has like, there's a reason why I'm, you know, making uh, a, a, a sweet potato pie that has like ginger and orange in it yeah. because it's flavored because it's like the camotes, which is the Mexican um, sweet where they stew, you know, sweet potatoes and pumpkins and piloncillo, which is their kind of version of our brown sugar um, with orange juice and ginger and cinnamon. And so, you know, in Mexico eating that, I was like, this tastes just like sweet potato pie back home, but, you know, with orange and ginger, which are not kind of usual things. And so I easily thought, you know, this, you know, pureed on its own and made into a custard is 
kind of like a cool version on a sweet potato pie. It's not groundbreaking, but it, it kind of links, you know, a Southern dessert to a Mexican one and through similar uh, flavors, similar ingredients or in, in a similar form. So. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I, I kind of read through the book and separated it in my head in three mm-hmm, sections. Mm-hmm. And it really was that, that classic, mm-hmm. uh, variations of the classic, yeah. and, and then that global influence. Yeah, and definitely. you can see how those things build, but you have such a basics in the classics themselves that obviously that's how you can compare. Yeah. Um, and one of the most interesting ones, I'm like, oh, this is truly a like old school Southern dessert. Mm-hmm which wasn't, is hummingbird cake. Yeah, yeah. It's a very... 1978. Yeah. In the realm of, you know, or when you think about a timeline of like when foods are invented, that's a very young one. Um, that was one that was invented by, I cannot remember the lady's name, but it was invented... This in, is L.H. Wiggins. Oh, you got it. There you of go. Greensboro, North Carolina. <laughs> yes. And she submitted it to Southern Living in 1978, and it was her recipe. And it was, you know, for all intents and purposes basically a really moist banana bread that had coconut and pineapple in it and then layered with cream cheese frosting with pecans on the outside and that was one that you know in the book i had recipes that were riffs on classics but also ones that were just straight up classics and i tried not to mess with them too much because they were just so amazing on their own like they didn't need to be um messed with really much or updated and that was one of the ones that on its own already it was already you know it fit my parameters for being you know, a natural thing. It was um, not too crazy sweet or, um, you know, or bland or just too rich. It was like the perfect dessert and kind of quintessential Southern dessert, even though it, yeah, it's very recent um, in the history. And so I wanted to take recipes like that and just leave them alone in a way mm-hmm. and like um, maybe tone down the sugar a little bit and maybe kind of um, balance out the flavors with a little more salt or a little more lemon juice, um, things I always like to do, or less vanilla or things like that. Um, and that was one of the recipes I kept as it was, but like for the sweet potato, you know, the camote's pie, I was thinking to myself, all right, sweet potato is such a classic, you know, pie in, in the American South, but who really needs another recipe? I mean, the way it's made already is mm-hmm. pretty classic and natural. And so that's why I wanted to riff on that. So some recipes where I thought, you know, just ha- as they are is so amazing already, they don't need to be messed with. And some were just as amazing, but you know, people needed something else, something not as... Well, what did your mother say when you made homemade corn syrup for her pecan pie? She did not think it would actually work, probably. She was <laughs> like, I didn't even know how you... I know you could make corn syrup. And yeah. I was like, well, it's not technically corn syrup, but I'm... I mean, when you use corn syrup, if you don't even think about what the chemical reactions are in it, it's basically just a really thick, simple syrup. And so I knew from reading, you know... um, Harold McGee over the years and different things about how to make uh, how sugar crystallizes and things like that. I knew that if I made a really thick, uh, simple syrup and added some lemon juice to it, both to balance the obvious sweetness of, you know, a ton of sugar in the syrup, but also it helps keep it um, from crystallizing. And I think I'm probably getting this wrong, but um, makes it kind of like an inverse syrup. It does something to the chemical properties in the sugar an to make isomalt. it. There you go. Yeah. yeah, to keep it liquid all the time. Yeah. And so I was like, I can do this. Sublimation. And this is the same thing. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you're still using an intense amount of sugar, mm-hmm. but it's you know it's not high to fructose corn syrup. It's not this crazy odd thing that a lot of people have a stigma attached to it these days. Um, and so yeah, she didn't believe it could actually even be made. But I was like, it can be. It's here. And so, but you know, in the book also. I've always been one to, I want to take the natural approach. I want to, you know, if you have a little more time, you know, make that corn syrup to make the thing better. But you know what? At the end of the day, I want you just to make the 
the damn pie. Like yeah. if you're gonna, you have to use caro corn syrup. That's totally fine. I will not judge you whatsoever. I think a lot of people might judge you, but I won't. And I think that maybe judging about ingredients like that, where you, you know, where you think, Oh God, if I don't have this, I can't make it. That takes the fun out of baking. And I want people to have fun. Like I want it to be a relaxed thing that, there, you know, there's no stigma attached to using, you know, read ingredients if you don't want to. Um, but if you have the time, make it all natural, make it the way you die right in the book and it'll taste that much better, but definitely don't be like, I can't try this at all because I don't, you know, I can't make my own corn syrup right now. I mean, so. what would you have said if it came to Christmas time and your aunt Barbara Jane did not <laughs> deliver one of her tins filled with all these oh, great God. candies and cookies. What's in there? Oatmeal crisps. Oatmeal crisps, um, which are basically like oatmeal raisin cookies, but without the raisins. And they're kind of more lacy, um, more fat, less or more more fat, less flour. And so they're like really crispy, crunchy, uh, a lot more sugar. Those and her version of Mexican wedding cookies, which she called cocoons, which I found out a lot of people do that as well. And they're basically just, you know, the really um, crunchy kind of walnut or uh, pecan shortbread. She would use pecans rolled in powdered sugar. She would also make these um, peanut and pretzel chocolate candies. They're basically like what I call like a redneck Rocher kind of thing. It's just <laughs> literally peanuts and salty pretzels mixed with, she would use dark chocolate like almond bark, the fake stuff. And so I was like, we need to use real chocolate for this. Um, and then she would also you uh, make some good old uh, southern sausage balls that a lot of people some people know about, some people don't. I didn't include it in the book because it wasn't Sausage sweet. Sausage balls? It's literally a box of Bisquick uh, mix with a pound of browned spicy Italian sausage and then I think a whole bag of like shredded Kraft cheddar cheese. You just mix it all up, form it into a ball, and bake it. It is the best thing <laughs> you've ever had in See, your See, that's dialogue. what I want for Valentine's Day. <laughs> I don't so want good. these you know, like little cakes and conversation hearts. Mm-hmm, I want mm-hmm. one of these. So- what are they called? Sausage balls. Sausage balls. <laughs> And you would keep them in the tin. They would just get better as the days went on. You'd pop them in the microwave to heat them up. It was ridiculously trashy, but like the most amazing yeah. bite ever. And that was breakfast. I want to get back to these updates because another one you did, I, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if your grandma's neighbor knows that you've <laughs> changed her car- uh, coconut cake a little bit. Well, the coconut cake is actually, that one is not hers because, and the reason why is because I remember when I would be sitting around eating that cake, my mother would always say, you know, this is a fantastic coconut cake. I love it, but it's nothing compared to what my mom would make, which is her her mother, who is my grandmother, who actually died before I was born, so I never knew her. And so I was like, well, then prove it. Like, where is this woman's recipe? I need to make it then. And so the first time I ever made her uh, recipe, I was kind of like flabbergasted because I'd never had a coconut cake that tasted that good because it was made unlike any other because it used only fresh coconut. There was no coconut extract. There was no you know, cream of coconut. There was no, no um, sweet and shredded coconut from a bag either. It was literally just a plain buttermilk cake soaked in so much of the coconut water that it was almost like tres leches a little bit. And then you would stack it with an Italian meringue or like a seven-minute icing is what we called it and like fresh grated coconut um, in your fruit processor. And that on its own, like when you stick it in the fridge, the seven-minute icing would kind of like turn into like a marshmallow, but then the super moist cake, and you would eat a slice of that like cold from the fridge, and it was literally like drinking a cold, like a glass of like cold coconut water or milk or something like that. It was like the most refreshing thing ever. It wasn't heavy, didn't taste like you know super sweet or like you know this leaden with uh, other stuff. It was like the most perfect cake ever, and so that's why I included that one in the book. But then my 
paternal grandmother's neighbor who you're talking about, her caramel cake, though, that's the one that made it in the, the book because that one was such yeah. a fantastic cake. Um, and that was that was an interesting cake to make whenever I um, went over to her house and like made her made it with her because I wanted to include it in the book. And in what she always made it in a cast iron skillet, like the frosting. Um, so she, so the caramel frosting for these cakes is notoriously tricky. Like I made it before my own, like one out of 10 times it would work out because you're basically boiling all these ingredients to make this like caramelized milk fudge that will crystallize, you know, immediately if you don't work with it, or if you stir it too much. And then once it comes off the heat, you basically have like a couple minutes, maybe even not even that to get it onto the cake. So it has to still be spreadable but not too spreadable so that you can actually spread it without huh. running everywhere. So it's not like Dobo's tort where you just like pour it on top no, of it. No, 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 not at all. Is, I wish it was yeah. like that. But this is like you pour it on there and you have to kind of spread it while it's still warm enough to spread. But within 30 seconds of it hitting the cold cake or even the room temperature cake, you know, and your room temperature and or cold, your knife or spatula, whatever you can spread it with, it will like start to seize up and become fudge immediately. So you're basically encasing a cake in hard fudge. So you kind of have to work with it while it's still warm and that's like the trickiest thing and so she would make it all on in a cast iron skillet on her stove and because she had been making these cakes and this frosting for decades at this point she didn't need a candy thermometer she didn't need anything she knew exactly what it would look like when it was starting to boil um my favorite thing was that she mixed in a whole egg into her icing from the get-go which i was like is that not going to to curdle and boil up And she's like no it's just it's just there for texture i'm like that's nuts, but it works. Like I, every time I make it, I'm like, this is, I'm going to have little floating bits of egg in there. It never does. It's always, you know, seamless. Um, but so yeah, she could just, you know, swirl it with her wrist and then somehow like pick the, the skillet up, pour it over each layer, ice it, keep going like lickety split. And she would have it perfectly every time. I was like, I've got to do this. And so when it came time for the book, I myself made the caramel cake to like perfect the frosting recipe. I think at least eight or nine times. And it was one of those things where I tell people in the book, you know, to be really good at this type of frosting recipe, you're going to have to just make the cake over and over again. You're going to have to fail lots of times. It has to become just kind of like a a motion that you get used to, your body gets used to, to really know when to do it. But I tried my best to um, kind of like take some insurance out on making the frosting. So like, you know, if you use a cast iron, um, either skillet or I call it like a, a enamelware cast iron pot, like, like we say, or a copper pot because those pots retain heat longer. So that'll at least give you a little more time to keep your frosting kind of loose while you're still icing it. And it's, you know, stuck in the pan. Um, and I kind of warn people, I'm like, this is going to probably not going to work the first time you make it, <laughs> just try it. And if you use these precautions, if you work with it, you know, if you do it, make it exactly how I say, and, um, beat it for this long and try to get it on there quickly and spread it like within 30 seconds, you should be fine. I still get nervous making it. Like I'm yeah. not gonna lie. It's just one of those things like, Oh my God, this is, this could go awfully wrong. Well, I but. think this is one of those cakes that is better to go to the heart of Mississippi and exactly stop by your grandmother, Carol's neighbor's house, which is how, which is why she was a cake lady. <laughs> like, you know, not many people can make this cake. And so she made it her profession. She got good at it. And that's why people bought it because it was kind of a tricky thing, but it's, it's so good. I think it's totally worth the effort. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that cake a little bit more, the Deep South, but also a little about Sicily and Greece via Astoria, Queens. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back.
White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again with Ben Mims of Sweet uh, and Southern. Yes. What is the subtitle of this cookbook again? It's Classic Desserts with a Twist. And that's what it is. And that's exactly what exactly. it is. Exactly. <laughs> I, I love when a book actually, you know, is exactly what it means to be. Exactly. No, you know, I'm not, no smoke and mirrors. Like, this is, this is what it is. You're going to get your peach Straight cobbler. You're going to get your peanut butter pie, your mm-hmm. buttered pecan ice cream, mm-hmm. um, cornbread pudding, which sounds oh, yeah. fantastic, fantastic, too. But... It, it's these little riffs, these iterations that you were talking mm-hmm. about, which just blow my mind a little bit. You get a bumper crop of cantaloupe uh-huh. every yeah. summer, and oh, yeah. you're combining that with one of my favorite cake methods, <laughs> the upside down. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, that was, that was one where you know I love pineapple upside down cake, but again, that was one of those where it's, it's already good as it is. How can you really improve upon it? And I wanted to do something... Like you, like I get all these cantaloupe. I love them, but like, what do you do with them? Like you have to eat them, eat them raw. That's really it. Like you can juice them, but that's kind of like gross water. You know, you don't really want to drink that. And you can make sorbet, yeah, but who really even likes sorbet that much? And so I kind of was like, there has to be some, you know, way I can use slices of cantaloupe that doesn't totally ruin the texture of the fruit, doesn't take away from the, like the amazing flavor that it already has or overwhelm it. And so I figured. Um, Upside down cake would be the best, you know, just a plain kind of simple butter cake, um, not too much brown sugar in the topping and, you know, kind of keep the vanilla and keep everything kind of low. And so you can kind of the very faint flavor of the cantaloupe can shine through. And so it worked and um, it kind of pairs perfectly with it because the cantaloupe is just so faintly sweet. And so when you have like a kind of a rich buttery cake to go with it you kind of don't need any other you know dressings on it it's perfect as it is yeah the red velvet cake you didn't think was perfect as it had been yeah and put a little pomegranate juice in there yeah it was you know i love red velvet cake it's fine but after a while i don't have a i don't have a huge problem with red food dye but you know you don't want to want to eat that stuff either all the time if you're you know if you're just trying to not be unhealthy all the time and so that was actually my editor of the book he was allergic to red food dye and he was like i would love to have red velvet cake, but I haven't had it in years because I'm allergic to it. So can you find another way to, to make it? And I was like, okay. And so I knew that, you know, you can use beet juice to dye it the color that you want it to be. But I personally hate the flavor of beets in Agreed. sweet things. Yeah. I, I like them on their own, but not, I don't like them that way. And I was like, well, there has to be some other way to make it this red color. And I, even though I knew that, you know, any kind of like red dyed, liquid or juice or whatever probably wouldn't make it as dark of red as food coloring would obviously i still want to try it out and so i kind of naively um took pomegranate juice because that was the most close thing i could think of um tried to like reduce it down a little bit and mix it into the the cake and see what came out unfortunately it came out this like awful like maroon color <laughs> it was not beautiful whatsoever but the pomegranate juice um because it has that kind of 
berry-ish tartness to it, um, played off the cocoa powder in the cake, played off the buttermilk, and kind of, it didn't make it more tangy, but it just kind of gave, gave an extra kind of tang to it with uh, you know, the pomegranate's own way it tastes. Um, and so even though it doesn't look like a traditional red velvet, um, it t- it's an interesting taste that I love that I think you know, kind of updates it and makes it even tastier. And I tell people, you know, if you really just have to have blood red velvet cake, you can add the food dye, but it's not necessary. Yeah. So. I also like how you took what is an oceanic dessert, the pavlova. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And put ambrosia on it, and it, oh, it yeah. also like um, it rhymes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and we also joked while I was making the book that would be my new drag name. Yeah. <laughs> if I ever took up that profession. Yeah. Um, but that was another kind of natural, uh, you know, similarity that I saw. Like, you know, pavlova is one of my favorite desserts ever. I love meringue. You know, probably more than any other thing in the entire world. I think it's the most amazing textural, you know, sweet, crunchy dessert ever. And, you know, top it with some whipped cream, some grapefruit, and a lemon curd. Like, you can't really beat that. Like, that is the ultimate dessert to me. And growing up, we always had ambrosia salad, which, if you're from the South, you know, it's this, like, jello mold-type salad of, like, coconut, oranges, maraschino cherries. Sometimes there'd be marshmallows thrown in for good measure. Um, I had versions that were, like, lime jello and pistachio, which was exotic for back then. Um, Always marshmallows. And so I kind of... I was like, this, here's this like fluffy, sometimes crunchy, kind of tropical, you know, amalgam of junk that we love to eat as like a salad, quote unquote, in the South. And, you know, I was like, these these flavors and this whole texture and the way you eat it translates perfectly to a pavlova. I mean, it's, you take, you have still have the same like cool, you know, creamy whipped cream, the crunchy meringue, and then you just add on the coconut. Um, I think I added grapefruit and oranges in the recipe with lime and just keep that tropical vibe going like real cherries uh, i made a pineapple curd for it um because who needs another recipe for lemon curd and i feel like pineapple is more exciting fruit for me i love it more um and so it just made sense you know it's just like a way to still have ambrosia salad but not using jello or not using like maraschino cherries and not using some kind of weird ingredients and so it was probably one of my favorite desserts in the whole book one of the most intriguing for me because i've been to sicily yeah uh, sicily is the cassata oh yeah um which <laughs> I'm not knocking Sicilian desserts, but uh-huh. there's a point where you're like, I don't want any more ricotta. Exactly. In yeah. all its, you know, crazy forms mm-hmm. from Fermi to Sale to Whip to this. Yeah. And I do love a cassata, but, you know, mm-hmm. you, you're you almost, you're scared of, you know, <laughs> how dense and how heavy it might yeah. be. And this is where you praise the power of cream cheese. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, and cream cheese per se is not really a southern ingredient, but I feel like because of its association with... You know, the icing, like on red velvet cake, it's on hummingbird cake. I feel like people, they think of the South, they think, oh, we put cream cheese on everything. And so I kind of, you know, ordain it, not officially, kind of a Southern cheese. Um, and they do make Creole cream cheese in New Orleans, which is one of my favorites. I don't even know what that is. I think it's like it's like a fresh version of cream cheese that yeah. they make. I don't know how they make it, but it basically is like cream cheese, but like much smoother. Um, and you can get it down there and it kind of acts in the same way. And I love it. Um and so for the cassata, that was one where I'd worked on, you know, developing like the most classic, amazing, perfect cassata that had ever been invented um, for Savor. And, you know, while researching, I saw where most people in Sicily use like almond paste for the, uh, for the marzipan, but they would like dye it green to look like pistachio. Some people did use pistachio, but not a lot. Um, and yeah, and it was like a simple sponge cake mixed with, you know, just sweetened ricotta, like a cannoli filling kind of thing. And then topped with, you know, a simple glaze and those mammoth like candied fruits like citron and orange and you know, day glow cherries. And so I, I thought to myself, I love this thing so much. 
this is an easy way that I can kind of swap out ingredients and make it kind of a, a Southern thing. Um, Southerners love very elaborate desserts. They love elaborate things, period. Um, and so it kind of made sense. And so I just on a whim thought I can make marzipan out of pecans. Don't know if anybody's ever done it before. We're going to try it. It worked perfectly because I, you know, with nuts, you can kind of swap them in and out pretty easily. Um, and then I kept the cake pretty simple, used cream cheese, lightened it up a bit, um, for the actual filling. And then I think I used some bourbon in the syrup to soak the cake. You think you of used rum. some bourbon? I you don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> no, I definitely used bourbon. Yeah. Um, but that was my reasoning for doing it was because I wanted to you know, make the Southern Casada. And so I used, I think the think was because I used like a couple of tablespoons. Yeah. I should have used probably more than that, but to make it really boozy. Uh, used bourbon. And then with the glaze on top, I used kind of what I consider um, quintessential Southern ingredients. I used pecans. Coconut, which is not, but it kind of is through use of the cake and everything, and the sweet and shredded stuff, which a lot of people use, um, and then bananas, you know, um, all these flavors that to me, yeah, they're tropical, but they're also kind of southern in a way because they are used so much in so many southern dishes, and it kind of worked. It translated perfectly, and I was like, you know, here's this dessert that's not new at all, but it's a, a different guise for southerners, and you know, p- people who are Sicilian or know of a cassata will be like, wow, that's interesting as well so it kind of worked perfectly for that i'm interested to try that one and you know what's what's even a step further there's like one you did a double translation to the Mm -hmm. indonesian inspired oh yeah uh, the the speck hook yeah which is originally based off of dutch baking Uh traditions yeah definitely tell me about this long lineage of of dessert yeah that was uh, a dessert that you know when i first got to server uh james oslin uh my editor-in-chief there he you know, had written books uh, or a book on called Creative Flavor on Indonesian Malaysian cooking. And so he only had, I think, maybe like three desserts in the whole book. And that was one of them. And I remember him telling me whenever I was in the kitchen and making all the sweets all the time, he's like, you have to make this cake. It's amazing. And it was basically a extremely butter laden um, Dutch cake that had a ton of cinnamon in it as well. And they would, um, in the tradition of the Dutch... Um, I think they call it like a tree cake. I don't know what the actual name of it is, but they would have a rod like a rotisserie over a fire and paint on cake batter as the rod is going around and around. And then eventually as the cake kind of sets on the bottom and rolls oh, forward. Oh, it's like bomb kuchens. Bomb Yeah. There you go. Um, and so you get these like rings of I don't even know that because of batter. my wife's last name. Is, oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the, same, it's the same thing. And so you get these like layers, tree rings of cake after a while, like caramelized super rich butter cake you know with like the moist inside um and so they did that but they did it in a pan and you just like re keep baking the layers until you had this striated effect of like really caramelized cake mixed with the plain you know batter on the inside and so i knew i wanted to that was one of my favorite cakes i ever made once i actually made it and i was like i have to kind of riff on this as well and so i ended up, i did I, that was a very simple twist on that one um i kind of wanted to make it slightly different to me with the caramel notes that you get from uh the caramelized um cake after each layer i I added some chocolate to half the batter because i was like that would be a really good kind of like caramel chocolate without being caramel really um cake to do and it kind of comes out perfectly because like once by the time you finish the very top layer and you had these you know striations of cake that kind of look like you know bacon fat rippled through a piece of bacon um the cake is set not unappealingly crunchy on the bottom and so you can cut it into like kind of thin slices and it's almost like a cookie at that point but also still tender enough to be a cake and it's kind of surprising like the texture you get like you, i can't really describe it because it's so in between 
like a crispy cookie and a piece of cake. That's awesome. Yeah. You know really what I want you to develop out of that? Go even further and do the rotisserie style barbecue, you know, during the summer. Oh, yeah. Style of that cake. Imagine Absolutely, making yeah. a cake over a fire at someone's, you know, backyard oh, barbecue. Absolutely. And with, you know, vanilla and chocolate layers, it would look like crazy marble and everything. That'd be amazing. I know I said this isn't a Valentine's Day show, but what is it? Saturday is Valentine's Day. Yeah. Saturday mornings for you were fluffy biscuits and oh, yeah. muscadine jelly. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how amazing is that to wake up and mm-hmm. have a relaxing weekend with those two things in hand? And also tell us, what the hell is muscadine? Muscadines are a variety of southern grape, I believe, that kind of thrive in really hot weather. So um, they're always very sour and they have like a really tough skin. Um, I only know this because we had a tree in my grandmother's backyard and we would go um, pick them and eat them. And they had a gigantic seed in the middle. So you got any flesh whatsoever. It was mostly really tough skin and seed. Um, but what little juice you did get out of it because it was so sour and kind of um, not very sweet, it kind of lent itself to making a jelly. And it was really high in pectin as well. So you could you know, literally just cook down some of the berries or some of the uh, muscadines, strain out the seeds and skin. And what you were left with was this you know, very congealed, gelatinous pulp that it had and had great flavor and you just add a little bit of sugar and so it made this like kind of ruby tinted jelly almost like um concord grape skins will like you know um color concord grape jelly is the same way because the skin of the muscadine is a little lighter purple so it made this beautiful like kind of ruby jam and so we always had that that was made by a lady in our town uh locally um don't remember her name don't remember what she called it but i remember you know the mississippi logo being on the front of the the ball jar and yeah, it was like a very loose set jelly. And so I would wake up every Saturday morning. It was either pancakes or biscuits. Most of the time it was biscuits um, in a cast iron skillet. Rise up puffy. Not very crunchy on the bottom or the top. I think that's something when I've been talking to people about what I'm so fanatic about biscuits about is that a lot of people, when they make biscuits, they get them really brown on the outside. And it's not supposed to be like a crunchy dinner roll. It's supposed to be a very fluffy, kind of like almost underbaked um, thing in the middle that you only have no more than 10 minutes out of the oven. Like if it's not piping hot and kind of like burning you, then you've lost the effect of it because then you're just eating a leaden piece of dough, you know? Um, but we always had that, you know, you split them open, get the butter on it really quick, maybe close it for like a minute to let the butter melt, open it back up, throw the jelly on there and eat it while it's still hot. And it was, it's heaven. It's I only hope some people replace, you know, Valentine's red with the ruby red muscadine jelly and that a fluffy be biscuit. New, new tradition, yeah. And, and if you're thinking about that, obviously the recipe is in Sweden Southern. Definitely. And, even if you're not planning to bake this Valentine's Day, please plan to bake the rest of the year and get this book. Thank <laughs> exactly. you so much, Ben. Thank you, Michael. Thanks you, for having me. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.